Um, if you have a Bible, let's go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We're in a series called Devoted where we're going through the book of Titus. Today is our last day in that uh, series. And so we're going to be looking at the closing section that Paul wrote uh, for Titus and the island of Crete. And I'll be reading out the ESV. And just so you know, that's a, a potentially a different translation than some people have. But we have some of the verses, many if not most, all, whatever. Verses are on the screen. A number of them. Um, so that will be helpful. But if you do uh, have a Bible with you, let's go to Titus chapter 3. You know, throughout this series, we've been emphasizing because of the, the subtitle of the series uh, of Titus is uh, the gospel and good works and how those two things go together. And so what we're going to see is a culmination of the things that we've been learning together. What we're going to see today is this, that being devoted to good works, because that's the title of today's message, devoted to good works. Being devoted to good works is the effect of believing the gospel. So when you think about good works, its relationship to the gospel, you have to realize that good works are the effect of believing the gospel, which is what it means to be devoted to God. So if you ever questioned your, uh, to yourself, what does it mean? What does it look like to be devoted to God? The answer is pretty simple, straightforward, according to Scripture. It's to believe the gospel and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's kind of it. So being devoted to good works, seeking to live out the Christian life, is the effect of believing the gospel. And all of that is just simply what it looks like and what it means to be devoted to God. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. However, it's incredibly deep and profound and beautiful when you start to unpack what all that means. And so that's what we have laid before us today. So let's read this, verses 8 through 11 of Titus chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned. And we'll be looking at the rest of the verses in due time. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for the many things that lay ahead of us today. And especially, God, the immediate presence of us being here and knowing that you're here among us. God, may you use this time to whichever end and for whatever purposes you see fit. So, God, we have not gathered here for no reason. We've gathered here ultimately to meet with you and to hear from you. And so, God, I'm praying that you would indeed answer these prayers and meet our expectations. God, would you speak to us? God, would you minister to us in the ways that we need to be ministered to? God, would you help us as we unpack this text to have a fuller and greater understanding of not only the gospel, but how it fleshes out in our lives through good works? And above all these things, God, help us to see the beauty of your church and to seek its purity. And so, God, I pray that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, everything that you have for us today. And we'll give you the thanks for what you show us and what you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So being devoted to good works is the effect of believing the gospel, which is what it means to be devoted to God. If you look at verse 8. Paul says that the saying is trustworthy. 
I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. When you read that, you notice that Paul says that this saying is trustworthy, meaning uh, it's something that you can actually believe. It's something that you can understand to be true. You can actually take hold of it and accept it. And then he goes on and he says, I want you to insist on these things. And the idea of insist means to, to lay a, um, a level of importance on something, to elevate it to being um, vitally important, to being integral, to being uh, something that you must focus on. It's like the, the primary thing that's going on. So when he says the saying is trustworthy, it's something you can accept, and you need to insist on these things. He's saying this thing, whatever it may be, is important. It's to be central. It's the thing that needs to be emphasized. So the question naturally is, what are those things? And the answer is found in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. It's the things that he has already explained and already talked about just previously. And we could basically take that whole section and summarize it in a simple phrase, the gospel. And, and here's how Paul, if we, if we took what he said in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, we took all of that content and we boiled it down to its basic elements. Here's what Paul is saying that we should insist on. Because of the goodness and the love of God, God became a human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Who would live a sinless life for us. He was crucified on a Roman cross as the payment for the penalty of sins. Not his own sins. But the sins of those who would believe in him. He shed his blood his people. He was dead and he was buried. That is until he rose from the dead on the third day to prove that his death was a sufficient payment for sins and that the new life that he has promised has been purchased and secured for all who would believe. And God has applied the benefits of redemption to those who are his through the Holy Spirit that they may have eternal life in his name. God saves sinners according to his grace, not because of our worthiness or because of our works. That's a basic summary of chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 7. And Paul says, insist on these things. Make them central. Because remember, Paul is writing to Titus, who is leading the church on the island of Crete. The island of Crete is found in the Mediterranean. Its characteristic is that the people who live there are just wild and wicked and all kinds of immorality is running rampant. And so Paul, in his mind, is thinking if the church is ever going to have sustainability and influence and impact on that island, then what is needed most is that the church needs to insist on these things. Or in other words, in order for the church to sustain and have an impact on the island of Crete, the church must insist on the gospel. Everything the church does and what they talk about and what they preach and teach and what they pray and what they sing needs to be centered on and calibrated to the gospel. Now, when you think about that, that gives us as a church here locally, Golden Hills Community Church, that is our marching orders. What we will do is the insistence upon the gospel and it will permeate and saturate everything we do. 
Because if we fail to do that, then we fail to do what a church is meant to do. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, may it never be that this church ever ceases to insist on the gospel. Why? Because if we cease to insist on the gospel, we cease to be Christian. Because the gospel is the essence of what it means to be Christian. In other words, no matter what you apply the term Christian to, if it's not informed by, leading to, or motivated from the gospel, that term is meaningless. Christian is just whatever. Many times in our culture, what, when people say Christian, they just mean like nice people. There's a lot of people going to hell who are super nice. Do you see that? The gospel, what I just summarized, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises of the Old Testament, God come in the flesh incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a sinless life to secure all of the perfection and righteousness that you and I cannot manufacture ourselves. Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross willingly to die there for the payment and the penalty for the penalty of sins in our place. He had no sin of his own. And yet he was dead and buried and forgotten, and yet he rose victoriously from the dead. And as he emerged from that tomb, now left empty, he proclaims, my resurrection is confirmation that my crucifixion is final and the payment is paid. And for all who will believe, you are free. Wow. Not only that. But he ascended to the right hand of the Father, promised that he would send the Holy Spirit who would guide us into all truth. And the Holy Spirit would apply to us all of the benefits of redemption. Now, that's Christianity. To deviate from that is not just to have an ulterior, alternative, deviant thought or belief. It is to believe and think that which is not Christianity. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Timothy 1.15. And I love how he phrases this because this is so provocative in our culture. He writes in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy. There's that word again. You can believe it and accept it. It's deserving of full acceptance. What is it? What is the saying? What he does is basically summarize the gospel, summarize Christianity. This is how J.I. Packer describes the gospel. God saves sinners. Three words. And here's where Paul, how Paul says it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That in and of itself is basically the, the contours of the gospel. And it's so provocative in our culture. People don't like that. Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, the anointed one, came into the world. In other words, that th- this person, Jesus, has eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity. And he came into the world via the virgin birth. You say that kind of stuff in our culture today and they go, what are you talking about? Virgin birth. What are you talking about God, eternal, incarnate in Jesus? Everybody knows Jesus was just a moral teacher. Everybody knows that he was kind of a spiritual guru. 
He was a motivator. He said some kind things and nice things, you know, like love everyone. We talking about God in human flesh. It's provocative. And then that Jesus came into the world to save. What do you mean save? Save sounds like there's something bad going to happen to people unless Jesus intervened. Well, yeah. No, no, no. Bad stuff's not going to happen to us. In fact, as the false prosperity gospels teach, if God truly loves you, he will make sure nothing bad happens to you. Well, that's a terrible way to live, considering Jesus himself said, in this world you will have much tribulation. So who's lying, Jesus or you? Oh. Okay, that's provocative. Or, or what about the last one, that he came to save sinners? You can't call people sinners. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that people are basically good? Well, if people are so basically good, let's just stop for a second and think about the conversations we've had over the last week. How much of your conversation over the last week revolved around people who weren't all that good? My kids are crazy. My wife is crazy. My coworkers are nuts. People who drive on the road, they're all crazy. Do you notice how much of your life is observing the not good of the people around you? Where are all these good people you speak of? <laughs> Let us meet them. Because they're probably not in this room, right? <laughs> See, you're mad now. People leave it. I'm just kidding. But we don't want to hear this stuff. And then the last part I think is beautiful. Paul includes himself. You know the sinner group? I'm one of them. You know this people that need saving? I'm one of them. You don't hear that in our culture very much. Because to express need is a sign of weakness. Basically, it's this. Look, if you want to be a Christian, the first thing you need to do is express your weakness through your confession that you are in need. You can't be a Christian without it. That's the basic contours. And Paul is so... He's, He's so adamant about preserving the gospel that he's willing to say incredibly painful things, stern things, warnings to those who would potentially compromise the gospel. Here's what he writes in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. In every one of Paul's letters, he always starts out with a very happy tone. Like, I love you guys. I love everything you're doing. I'm praying for you. In Galatians, not so much. He has no greeting that is, like, warm or welcoming or happy. Here's his greeting. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. <laughs> he goes on to say, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But here's the key. Even if we, the Apostle Paul says in his company, if we or an angel from heaven, imagine such a thing, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know what the word accursed means? Anathema. You know what the word anathema means? Go to hell. Yeah, you feel that, right? You're going, oh, did he say that? It's not so much that Paul is trying to attack people. 
Paul is trying to communicate the severity, the significance, and the weightiness of the truth of the gospel in comparison to those who potentially distort it. We're not playing games here. This is deathly serious. So he says, as we have said before, so now I say it again, verse 9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There's our word again. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the logic of Paul is simply this. And you can read it in Galatians 1 and Galatians chapter 2. You can read how Paul uh, gives his kind of biography of, of what happened. Paul encountered Jesus Christ risen from the dead on the road to Damascus. He spent some time with a guy named Ananias. And there he was, uh, he met Jesus. And through a revelation of Jesus, he was discipled by Jesus himself. For an extended period of time, that was his learning. That was his, he went to no, he didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to the apostles. He didn't go to the church in Ephesus or Jerusalem to learn what he learned. He learned it directly from the mouth of Jesus. Now here's the catch. 14 plus years later, he decides he's going to go up to Jerusalem. So he heads to Jerusalem to meet the apostles whom he has never met. And he goes before them and he says, hey, good to meet you guys. I just want to let you know for 14 plus years, I've been learning the gospel from Jesus himself and preaching it. And so I want to present to you what I've been teaching and get some feedback. So he lays out his gospel before the apostles. And you know what the apostles said? Keep doing what you're doing. And the apostle Paul said that the apostles added to him nothing. In other words, when he laid out what he was preaching and they compared it to what the apostles were preaching, they looked at it and went, we're preaching the same thing. So what you get from the apostle Paul is the same thing as what you get from the apostles of Jesus. It's the apostles' teaching. Now think about this, brothers and sisters, because this is significant. Much of the New Testament is written by Paul or the apostles. Therefore... When we read the New Testament, which is produced, written in, uh, by the apostles under the influence of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what we have is the true gospel taught by Jesus himself. So to contradict it or to go against it is not just to say Paul's an idiot or the apostles got it wrong, but it's to say Jesus himself, you know, the same guy that rose from the dead. And by the way, just a bit of, of information, you have to remember, God doesn't raise heretics from the dead. The fact that Jesus miraculously rose from the dead means that God confirms all that Jesus is and all that Jesus taught. So the, resurrect, the fact that there's an empty tomb, historically speaking, we can validate that. The empty tomb speaks a word that this is true. So when we contradict or we hear contradiction of what Paul preaches and teaches through the written word contained in the New Testament or something contradictory to the apostles' teaching, which is also written contained in the New Testament, we have to take pause and we have to realize I have to choose between a false gospel and Jesus. That's my choice. 
don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but do you feel the weightiness of that? So then Paul goes on and he gives these superlatives, these, these accolades, and he attributes them to the gospel. He says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, the gospel, this, this purity of the gospel is excellent, which means it has supreme value. Supreme value. It's profitable. It's beneficial. There's so many good things that come from it. And what that means is anything the world offers, which is a so-called rival to what the gospel is and what the gospel offers, in every imaginable comparison, the gospel shines more excellently in every way. So no matter what the world offers, whether it's greedy, whatever, get rich quick schemes or, or whatever, you know, you got to have a good job, good retirement. You got to raise your kids right where they don't swear and they go to school and they excel in sports so that way you can retire and they can pay for you. Or, or you get a motorhome, you drive across the, the, the country and then you park in Florida and collect seashells. Whatever you want to do, whatever the world offers, the gospel is better in every way. Now, it's just a matter of seeing how the gospel is more excellent than the other stuff. And that's what I hope through preaching that I'm able to show you. That's why Paul says it's profitable. But he's going to make a, a distinction or he's going to compare in verse 9 things which are not excellent and things which are not profitable. Look at this in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are, look at these words, unprofitable and worthless. So where the gospel is excellent, these things are worthless. Where the gospel is profitable, these things are not profitable. So that's your choice. Now, we should avoid things which are worthless and unprofitable. <laughs> like, I know that goes without saying in some ways, but that might be in your best interest. So what is Paul saying we should avoid? It's all of this nonsense, this foolish controversies, these genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels. We need, we need to make sure that we avoid all that stuff. And remember how Paul wrote it in 1 Timothy. We had a series all through 1 Timothy. And what he does is in the chapter 1 and chapter 6 are the bookends of his letter. And he writes this on either side in that letter. He says in uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, speaking to Timothy, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, Paul doesn't say, hey, Timothy, people are teaching theology at that church. You better shut them up. He says, at that church in Ephesus, people are teaching a contrary theology. You need to tell them to stop. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And why? Because those things promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, what is our goal in this? Confrontation and correction and telling people to stop teaching false doctrine? Verse 5, the aim or the goal of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they say or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then the back end of the letter, he writes this. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And look at this. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Do you notice what Paul says right at the end? 
by confessing, professing, teaching, believing contrary doctrine, you have swerved from the faith. You see, believing, hearing, teaching, speaking false doctrine is the way in which you get off track. This is not just like, eh, who cares, just a matter of opinion. Because I think many people, when they hear this, they think, ah, yeah, I know what Paul's doing. Paul's telling the people that they should stop studying theology. They need to stop pursuing doctrine. No. Because in verse 8, remember, he says, insist on these things. The gospel, insist on it. The gospel is theological. The love of God, the grace of God, salvation, the Holy Spirit, theology, 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 theology. You get that? So it's not the presence of theology that causes all of this worthlessness and unprofitability in the church. It's the presence of bad theology that is worthless and unprofitable. And so Paul is eager to make sure that the church is pure in its doctrine. So much so that he writes in Titus 1, verse 13 to 16, the testimony is true that the, the Cretans and their false teachers, they're really, they got this wrong. Therefore, he says, rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they may be sound in the faith. The word sound there is healthy. So that they may be healthy in their walk with the Lord, in their Christianity. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and this last one is important. They are unfit for any good work. You see, teaching false doctrine, believing false doctrine, advocating false doctrine is one way that you become, as Paul says, unfit for good works. You see that? If you want to be as a follower of Christ, somebody who is able, eager to do good works, what enables you to do that is the purity and the truthfulness of what you believe. If you get wrong thinking, you're going to get, as a result, wrong living. However, as God has promised in his word, if you get the theology right, the gospel right, the good works are its effects. So we can't be people who are committed to false doctrine, fake teaching. Instead, we need to be watchful. And discerning. Now, I know when you hear stuff like this, you're thinking, I don't know hardly anything. And I would simply say this. When you hear things like this, it's not a reason to fret. It's a reason to stop and think to yourself, how might I grow in my theology? So don't be overcome by what this is. Be motivated by it. I need to grow in this. And somebody came up to me after one of the services earlier, and they're like, but I don't know very much. And I go, it's true. 
You maybe don't. I don't either. But here's the thing. Whatever we do know, let's make sure it's true. And let's go from there. Further up, further in, as C.S. Lewis says. Further up, further in. Maybe you're not as motivated as I am. (laughs) But another thing we need to be watchful of is division. Verse 10 He's, he, in verse 9, he's speaking of things that cause division, and now he's talking about persons who cause division. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. You see what he's saying? You're going to encounter people, as the Apostle Paul says, there are going to be wolves dressed in sheep's clothing who are going to try to scatter the sheep and ruin the flock. That's going to happen. Jesus said it. The Apostle Paul said it. So it's probably going to happen. Now, when we encounter people like that, there is a protocol that Paul gives, how we, he instructs us on what to do. He says this, three steps. Number one, warn him once. Step number two, warn him again. Step number three, if he still doesn't change his mind and change the way he's living, have nothing to do with him anymore. Now that comes straight from Jesus, which may shock you. Here's what Jesus says about this. He says, if your brother in Matthew 18 sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. Not through Facebook. (laughs) Go to him or her. Talk. Buy them coffee and talk. Face-to-face. I know that's weird. Not FaceTime, but face-to-face. Second thing, Jesus says, and then he says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Man, that's awesome. They go, oh, I didn't even know I was teaching that. I didn't even know I was wrong about that. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thanks for showing me. (laughs) All right. But, verse 16, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Once again, Don't create a Facebook group on how this person is an idiot. Take two or three trusted people and go and have a conversation. If he refuses to listen even to them, Jesus says, step three, tell it to the church. The word church here is not just, you know, I hear people all the time, I'm doing church. And they have a picture of them on a beach in Maui sipping a Mai Tai. And I'm going, no. Or at least you have a deluded, very small understanding and unbiblical idea of what a church is. But no, 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 that's not what you're doing. The church, by definition, is the called out ones who gather. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, when when you're gathering, the called out ones gathering, you need to go and tell them. And remember, every church is led by elders. And so what Jesus is advocating is, look, if you talk to them one-on-one and then you brought a couple people to talk to them and they're still teaching false doctrine and living wild and reckless and they claim to be Christians, then at some point you need to go and tell the elders. And if they still look at this, if they refuse even to listen to the church, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Or in other words, do not associate with them. These are not steps of what you do when anybody... Uh, you disagree with. This is the steps of what do you do within the context of the church when you have a professing Christian teaching and advocating false doctrine or a false way of living. This is what you do. Now, I know for some of you that's like, oh my goodness. 
I thought Jesus was all lovey-lovey, like welcome everybody. Well, he is, to a point, when you start bringing his name through the mud. You see, Jesus is jealous for his own glory and for his own namesake. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Look at this. Contrary to the doctrine that you have taught, you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You see, when you start to see people who are teaching false doctrine, they are creating division. Now, division, I love this definition. Daniel Aiken, he defines, or he helped, he, he's very helpful in his commentary on Titus. He says this, the Greek word for divisive gives our English word heretic. So it's not just you create issues, it's that the issues you created are because of heresy. The word heresy is false teaching. And he goes on to say it's first century meaning referred to a person who is quarrelsome and stirs up factions through erroneous opinions, a man who is determined to go his own way and so forms parties and factions. That person is divisive. In other words, a person who's divisive is simply advocating their own personal opinions about things, which are contrary to sound doctrine, and they're trying to create a following so that people will obviously like them. That sounds exactly of some of the stuff you see today. A lot of false teachers are putting their false teaching online and it's being promulgated and spread throughout social media and people are eating it up, just clicking it and sharing it. And the odd thing is sometimes when I watch this, I'm going, are you kidding me? The motivational speaker, Tony Robbins, and this so-called pastor say basically the same thing and neither of them are saying anything about the gospel. And Christians are just, yes, like it, share it, love it. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is happening? Because these folks are creating little enclaves and groups of people to follow them in their erroneous, heretical ways. And as Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I'm still trying to please man, I cannot be a servant of Christ. So Paul says in Romans 16, people who act and teach like this, what they're doing is they're demonstrating that they're not serving Christ, but they're serving their own appetite. You know, like the appetite of fame and money and power and influence. So we have to be careful. Now, what is our aim in all this? If we are to identify that false teaching and those false teachers who claim the name of Christ, but by their actions, it's obvious they deny them, what do we do? Well, confront them face to face. If you can't do that, or they refuse, and the next one is with some people. If that doesn't work, tell it to the church. Now, if it's somebody online, what do you do? This is hard. But no matter what we end up doing, we have to make sure that we check our motivation because our motivation in any of this correction ought to be always love, love and repentance. Repentance for the one who is an heir and love for the one who is advocating the correction. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.5, our aim in this charge is love. Our aim in this charge is love. Or this is how he put it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
He says, so flee the youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but look at this, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You see, Paul is advocating correction. He's identifying that there are such people who are opponents, who stand in uh, opposition to the gospel. But he's saying the manner in which you do the correcting ought to be gentle. You see, in our culture today, we define love and gentleness by the absence of conflict and correction. If you truly love me, you will just let me be and not say anything. That's why when you go to somebody and you actually say, dude, I think you're dead wrong here. You, you can't be doing that. you got to change. And they will say, how dare you judge me? You're supposed to love me. The reality is we have not properly defined what love and gentleness is. Love and gentleness is not the absence of conflict and correction. Love and gentleness is the manner in which we go about the correction. The correction is still needed. But what it's also needed is love and gentleness. And the reason why I want to make sure I say that <laughs> is because there are some people, and I know this to be true, who have hearing this kind of sermon, hearing these verses are going, yeah, now I have the scripture references and justification. And next time I see my sister-in-law, she's going to get it. I'm so going to get in her face. I'm so going to show her how she's wrong. I'm so going to tell her. If you have been thinking that thought while you've been listening to me, or you were kind of like, okay. I know what I'm about to do this afternoon. Before you leave today, please repent of your sin. Because... We are to love and to be gentle in our correction. Not vindictive, nor trying to be victorious, emerging from a conversation as though we are the pillar and arbiter of all truth. <laughs> How dare you, Superman? Do not be like that. Our aim is repentance. Repentance is the idea of turning away from something and turning towards another thing. And when somebody is unknowingly or even knowingly in error, somebody needs to say something. And the aim is love. The hope is repentance, that they will turn from their error and they will turn towards the truth. That's our goal. We want to win them. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 10 about repentance. And he says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, and what he's referring to is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which we'll read in a little bit. He wrote to the church in Corinth about a man who was having sexual, uh, immoral relationship with his stepmom and was bragging about it in the church, and they weren't doing anything. And so Paul had some harsh things to say, we'll see. He says, but even if I made you grieve, I made you heartbroken, you were like pained because of my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it because I saw that the letter grieved you only though for a little while. But as it is, I rejoice 
Not because you were grieved. I'm not happy that you're in pain. I'm not a masochist. But I rejoice because you were grieved into repenting. My goal was through love and gentleness that you would turn from your air and you would embrace the truth. So I caused pain in your life and I get it. You hated me for it. That was temporary because now look what God has done. You have turned from your air to the truth. We're reconciled. Praise God. For you felt a godly grief, he writes, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, depending on what kind of grief you have, how you respond to your grief is going to be different. If you are grieved in your spirit, you are, if you feel that, that sense of conviction, and it's only a worldly conviction because you got caught, you won't do much about that except for try to not get caught. But if you are grieved in your heart because you know that you have grieved God, your response will be repentance. God, I'm going to turn from this. I'm turning to you. I screwed up big time. I'm sorry. You see, true repentance never seeks to blame other people for your own behavior. True repentance never casts the blame on somebody else. True repentance never looks to garner sympathy for oneself by playing the victim card. I cheated on my taxes, but the homeowners association, they raised the price. What? True repentance does not demand forgiveness and acceptance. The reason is contrition. You guys know what that word is? Contrition. Humility. When you're in a state of humility, you are not in a position to be demanding anything of anyone. Contrition is a humble state of brokenness. And when you are humbly broken... It does not compute in our minds that you can also be demanding that other people forgive you and accept you. You better forgive me. Jesus said it. You better accept me or else. Whoa, Mr. Unrepentant. Do you see that? And what Paul goes on to say is when people refuse to repent, you have to realize that these folks are warped. They're sinful. They're self-condemned. He writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about his relationship to the church and the purity of the church. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you, I promised you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Man, as, as pastors, we feel that. I'm going to be held responsible one day. I'm going to be asked to present the church. Here's what I have to offer you, God. Here's my labors. And so, yes, I am vigilant about sound doctrine. And I am jealous that we all believe, teach sound doctrine. Because we want to be presented to Christ as his spotless bride. Do we not? 
But Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, why is Paul so anxious? He says, because if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In Paul's mind, he's like, look, I promised, I betrothed you to God that you would be free of wrinkle and spot. The purity of the doctrine is what I stake. I feel this jealousy for you. And I'm scared to death that you're being deceived because people come in and they're teaching things they ought not to teach. They're giving you the spirit of things that you ought not to have and teaching gospel contrary to the true gospel that you believed and accepted. And for whatever reason, some inexplicable response in the church is you don't do anything. You just embrace it. No wonder why, brothers and sisters, many people in the world consider Christians as being brainwashed or mindless or uneducated or whatever. One of the things that I am committed to, and I believe God has asked me to do this, is through my preaching that no one would ever leave and go, that guy doesn't know anything. Does that make sense? I want to demonstrate that we as Christians are thinking people because we can love God with our minds. So let's think hard about what God has to say. Let's think hard about how to apply what God has said. Let's think hard about the consequences, implications, and, and the results of what we think and how we think and how we live, shall we? So Paul said people who do this, who come into churches and do all this kind of stuff, he says in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11, they are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Brothers and sisters, just because somebody has the moniker or the name Christian does not make them a Christian. We have to be careful about the content of what is said, not just whether or not you were entertained while that man said it. Do you see the difference? He says, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The end will correspond to their deeds. Or in other words, by the way in which they live and by, by, how, by what and how they teach, they're going to get what's coming to them. And you'll know it. Daniel Aiken in his commentary summarizes it by saying, it's essential that a church protects and values its doctrine and moral integrity. Those who would cause compromise in either area must be confronted, and if unrepentant, they must be avoided. So brothers and sisters, remember, this does not give you a license to be like the doctrine police. Nor are you now commissioned and get a badge that you're now the fruit inspector. But what it does mean is this. Before you worry about someone else's lawn, make sure that your lawn is taken care of. Make sure that you yourself have come to know and believe the gospel. And before you start lamenting and complaining about all the different churches and all the different people and what they're teaching and stuff, let's make sure that we in our homes are truly discipling our kids in the gospel. So 
That's our marching orders. And when we find false doctrine, we lovingly and gently correct for the sake of hopefully God may grant them repentance and you will win your brother or sister. Tick tock, tick tock. Let me just say a few things then, just we're out of time. Um, in verse 12 and 13, Paul mentions a whole host of names Artemis, Tychicus, Zenus the lawyer, Apollos. And it reminds us that, you know what, Paul was surrounded by such a great community of men and women. He was not a lone ranger in the ministry. And that is a sign of just beautiful plurality of leadership. We as people are not intended to live the Christian life alone. That's why the church is described through the metaphor of marriage. You can't marry yourself. You have to have somebody else. And you see, Paul had his, he had his people, he had his community. They watched his back and he watched theirs. Do you have that in your life? When I got hired here at Golden Hills 10 plus years ago, I came in as somebody who was pretty harsh. And what I mean is uh, when I spoke with people like in counseling situations, people used to make fun of me because they're like, Phil, you say the same thing in every counseling session. And I was like, what is that? And they're like, stop it. <laughs> what? And I realized I'm a horrible counselor. Um, but the other side of it is in my mind, I don't know if you can relate to this, but in my mind I'm thinking all of these like beautiful things to say and, and ways that I can soften the blow of the truth of it. And I'm, so I'm like, oh, you know what, here's, here's one thing you might want to think about, in my mind at least. But when the words come out, it's just different. And sometimes I hear myself speaking, and I'm going, what is wrong with me? And so I had loving men in my life who were listening to me speak harshly, and they confronted me. And one of them was David Morgan. He came to me, and he goes, dude, you can't keep talking like this. This isn't going to work. And I remember thinking to myself, who in the world are you? <laughs> but then I asked him, can you give me some examples? And he said, yeah, here. And I had to stop him. <laughs> there was a lot. <laughs> so I simply said, dude, we got to pray about this. It's serious. Yeah, it is. So I began to solicit prayer from a lot of people I know and love. I told them, dude, I, I recognize this is a defect in my personality. I realize this is a point of discipleship where I need God to work on me. So can you pray for me for this? And every day, I kid you not, every single day, that is one of the elements of my prayers. God, would you make me more gentle and more gracious? And to my understanding, I think God has answered those prayers to some degree. You may disagree, that's fine. I agree I am not where I should be, but I praise God I'm not where I was. So brothers and sisters, keep. So we keep this in the forefront of our minds that you're not going to be able to run this race well unless you're running it with other runners. We need each other. 
to speak not just flattery and not just letting us be content, but we need people who will lovingly correct us. Do you have that? You see, Paul writes in verse 14, we're going to end with this. I see people leaving, so I know I should finish. <laughs> Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul wants our people, which is those who have believed the gospel, who believe in God, verse 8, to devote themselves, to learn to devote themselves to good works. How? How do you learn to devote yourself to good works? Verse 8. Insist on these things so that, the word so that is a purpose statement, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist on the gospel so that you will be careful to devote yourself to good works. Our people, we, cannot learn to be devoted to good works apart from the gospel being insisted upon. That's why we as a church are so committed to unashamedly preaching, proclaiming, teaching, advocating, praying, and singing the gospel so that we, the people of God, will learn how to devote ourselves to good works. Are you tracking with me? There's two reasons we do this. And I won't read the verses. I see it. The clock is my enemy two reasons we do this. Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25 says that we should strive to spur one another up towards love and good works. Read that verse. It's in the, it's in the message outline. Read, read that verse, Hebrews 10. One of the reasons why we pursue the gospel and its effects of good works is for the good of our neighbors. The second effect is for the glory of God. Where Paul opens the letter of first of Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. He says, I want you to grow in love and abound more and more in depth of insight and knowledge of God so that you may be blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. And all of this is to the praise of God's glory. So the reason why we insist as Golden Hills, insist on the gospel is for the good of our neighbors and for the glory of God. And so I implore you, brothers and sisters, to be engaged in the ministry of the gospel. One of the things I love about being at Golden Hills is that we do that as best we know how. And we're learning how to do it better and better. Do you realize that in our children's ministry what we teach these kids? You better share or else, you little stinker. <laughs> that is not what we teach. Do you see what this says here? The gospel project. Everything we teach in children's ministries is centered on the gospel. Because they're the next generation who will lead the church, and because currently they're part of the church. So brothers and sisters, here's the reality. <laughs> who will be the ones to teach the gospel? None of us have an excuse to not be engaged in gospel ministry if you're a Christian whether it's in our homes or in a ministry like children's ministry or student ministries. Brothers and sisters, we have to transmit the gospel from one generation to the next. So God, help us as a church do these things, I pray. 
Lord, you know better than we do how, how we fail often at this. You know the places in our own lives where we neglect to give due attention to what we teach and how we teach it. God, you know that we often fall very short of the mark. But God, you reminded us in Titus 2.11 that the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives in the present age. So help us to remember your grace, I pray, in the midst of our failure, that we would be compelled by your love and grace to continue on and to press on further up and further in. God, empower your people in our church to be readily, eagerly, passionately engaged in gospel ministry. Help us as a church to never waver from the centrality of the gospel and help us to be the people who always proclaim the name of Christ for the good of our neighbors, for the glory of God. So God, would you do this for us, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray.